0: Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Thank you very much and um, and sorry everyone we seem to have had a bit of a technical hitch in relation to Nick um, Nick's presentation but I hope you can see and hear me. My name's Jane Miller. I'm Professor of Social Policy at the University of Bath, and I'm in the chair for this afternoon's panel. So it's great for me to welcome you all here. Um, I'm sure we're going to have a very interesting discussion and debate over the next hour or so. So the panel this afternoon has been um, given the question of, how do we build a new welfare state after COVID-19? I think this could not be a more timely or important question. COVID-19 has not gone away. But many of the emergency income support measures are being reduced, reduced, removed or reconsidered um, as time goes on. For example, today in the UK, we see the start of the removal of a weekly £20 a week uplift, which has been going to about 6 million people through the COVID crisis, some of the poorest in our society, and that is being removed from today onwards. So we're beginning to see the removal of some of those emergency measures. Um, And other countries are also considering their support and the future of their support. More positively, it's an opportunity to think about that future and to think about what opportunities there are for perhaps more radical change, more radical thinking about the welfare state as we go ahead. We've got a fantastically and great international panel. I'm really pleased about that today um, to discuss these issues. I'll introduce them in a moment. Um, Each of them is going to speak for about five to seven minutes. That's the challenge they've been given, so a quite short introduction from each of them. Um, We'll hear from each of them in turn, and then we'll um, have a general question and answer and discussion at the end. So let me just. Oh, oh and it, so if you could type your questions in as we go along, and if they're addressed to a particular panelist, please could you specify who you want to um, answer it? They could be questions for all of them, or all may have something to say. But if you have a particular panelist in mind, do please type that in. So let me introduce our panel. We have four members of the panel today. One is still, we hope, on his way. But um, here around the table at the moment, the virtual table that we're all at, um, we have Dr. Sarath Davala. He's a sociologist based in Hyderabad, India. He's the co founder and coordinator of the Indian Network for Basic Income and has been involved in various pilot schemes of basic income. We have Professor Mahendra Dev. Uh, Mahendra Dev has been the director and vice chancellor of the Indira Gandhi Institute of Development Research in Mumbai, India since 2010. He's also held a number of leading policy roles in India and internationally. Cleo Goodman is co-founder of the Basic Income Conversation, an organisation dedicated to increasing and improving the debate around basic income in the UK. Chloe, Chloe, Cleo leads their research network, working with civil society and political engagement. And our fourth panellist, Professor young Jung Choi, is Professor of uh, um, uh, in, uh, in the Department of Public Administration, sorry, and Director of the Institute for Welfare Research and Yonsei University in South Korea. We're hoping he'll join us as we go through. But I'm going to turn first to Sir Arthur um, for his five to seven minutes. So over to you.
1: Thank you. Uh, thank you, Jane. And thank you, Bristol Ideas and University of Bath for this uh, invitation to speak. Uh, I mean, yeah, yes. Um, is this the right time for universal basic income? I believe so. And um, uh, what kind of uh, welfare state is desirable? Uh, before doing that, I I would like to uh, I would like to look at the background. What kind of a crisis we are in? Our politicians. There's one thing that they hate is a crisis. They don't want to accept that there is a crisis. I think the first thing we need to do is that we have to accept that we are in a multiple crisis situation today. And the most important one affecting mankind is the employment crisis. Business models have changed in the 80s. And since then, I think progressively we are seeing um, changes in the way people relate to work, the way work is available or not available how the production system has been dispersed all over the world and so on and so forth i think this has created a situation where progressively more and more jobs have become insecure and i think that's all over the world percentages may vary i think that's the most important point a difference between the uh, the high income countries and the low income uh, countries Um, I think this employment crisis is essentially it is the going down of the quality of employment and uh, it's which means that from full time employment, we are moving towards part time, half time or um, uh, no employment and from temporary to uh, permanent to temporary jobs and actually a lot of jobs actually disappearing and wages stagnating across the world. Now, what this immediately translates itself into a welfare crisis, a welfare system that was based on a certain assumptions. It was trying to solve a set of problems. Those problems are no longer relevant because we have newer problems. So what this welfare system, welfare model, or if you would like to call William Beveridgean template that we have all inherited and try to improvise according to our context, I think that is no longer fitting into the current situation and not solving the uh, current problems. I don't want to go into the detail of the current problems we see, we have just seen the employment crisis. And as a result, the welfare system is completely broken. I think it manifests itself in a particular way in the high income countries, like for example, UK, we were just talking about, and differently in the low income countries. That was a system which, which focused entirely on the labor market I think youth were invested into youth because they would go into the labor market. And after the labor market, I think you have saved during your labor working years and then you uh, could retire with a pension. But I think that is no longer the pathway today that we are seeing. So I think majority of people are very, very precarious in uh, in the labor market and not having jobs in the labor market. And a lot of them, a lot of the youth are also not able to look forward to a decent job i'll take a quick example of india in india if i may if i may divide between the good jobs and the bad jobs which is which i have just described the good jobs are only with five we have 500 million uh workforce out of that i think just six percent have good jobs and 94 percent have bad jobs i mean it's a very simplistic thing but this is the statistics we have and i think what we had the 19th and 20th century labor legislation gave dignity so people we could see people as workers and worker was the central identity and taking care of people was in the register of being a worker but today as i just described the number gave the numbers the rights-bearing worker is an endangered species in the 21st century and progressively so. I think the 6% could be, we're talking about out of 500 million workforce, 30 million have, uh, 30 million are in this good, these good jobs and 20 are in the government jobs and only 10 are in the private sector. Now, what is the future that one is able to see and how, how, does, how does the state or how does the community will care for populations in the future? What are the mechanisms and what are the means? I think none of the projections we are able to say, for example, in India, it boils down to people be, because I'm saying worker, rice bearing worker is an endangered species. People are seen as beneficiaries. It is in the register of poor that they get. Bulk of our expenditure is giving subsidized grains, rural employment of hundred days, Free meals for children and nutritional supplements for pregnant women, old age pensions. That is how it translates itself into. Now, what is this all sustainable? I hope I have two more minutes, Jane. If I can go on, or oh, one more minute. Now, the point is that how would what how does how do we understand the, the care of populations in the future? What COVID has done. COVID has not created problems. COVID has only magnified what was already there. It was showing out what was already there. I think in our situation, we saw migrant migrant workers walking back home because both the employer and the state betrayed them and they had nowhere else to go. They just wanted to go and die in their villages. I will close my last uh, point is, what is the kind of new welfare system we should visualize and I feel basic income is an essential ingredient in the new welfare system. I think there are lots of inefficiencies that need to be stopped. Lots of redundant thinking that exists in our current models. We need to really get rid of them. I think basic income should be seen as a foundation of this new society. And I think it's possible, technology makes it possible to give a basic income to I think today we are already seeing technology able to manufacture goods able to provide services on its own so technology can create wealth for the nations so that I think with that um, possibility if we can see technology as an opportunity I think if we can convert a threat into an opportunity by actually harnessing technology for the benefit of I, yeah, I'll close with this, that the new welfare system should have a physical, mental, material well-being of people by providing income security, it should have an eco- ecological well-being by caring for nature. It should have a moral well-being by not encouraging hyper-consumerism moral well-being of human beings, I think life itself will take a new definition. So we need to interrogate the growth-centeredness of our economics. I end there. Thank you, Jane. Thank
0: you very much. That was perfect timing. You used your seven minutes beautifully. And um, I, I just noted one thing you said in the beginning about the middle about the rights-bearing worker is an endangered species. I think that's an important um, point for us to be thinking <laughs> about as we proceed. But let's move straight on to Mahendra, who is going to take the floor now. Um, let me pass over to you
2: please yeah thank you uh, Jane uh, and also thank you for inviting me for this uh, important uh, panel discussion so I'll be focusing on India I mean Sherath has given some of the things uh, so first I will discuss the impact and lessons due to the pandemic second I will briefly mention the needed policies on social sector social protection including uh, universal basic income so the economic shock you know, due to the pandemic is much more severe for India, for two reasons. First, uh, pre-COVID-19, the economy was already slowing down, compounding the existing problems of unemployment, malnutrition, and widespread inequality. Second, uh, as Sharath also mentioned, India's large informal sector is particularly vulnerable. As you know, around uh, 91% of Indian workers are in informal sector so the pandemic has uh, you know k shaped impact on the economy and livelihoods a large part of the corporate sector could manage the pandemic with higher profits the stock market has done well on the other hand the informal workers including daily wage laborers and uh, shrath mentioned migrants the uh, small and medium, medium enterprises etc have suffered a lot with lot- loss of income and employment So regarding labor market, unemployment increased, and labor force participation rates declined, particularly for women, one of the lowest uh, in the world, uh, women participation rates. So even after recovery now, there are about 10 million jobs less than the pre-pandemic period. So according to a report, millions of people were pushed into poverty. On health, the pandemic has exposed India's weak health infrastructure in both rural and urban areas. So one lesson on health is the need for improvements in healthcare, And there was also neglect of non-COVID patients suffering from cancer and other pro- health problems. Similarly, there are lessons on education. For nearly a year and a half, schools were shut and shifted to remote learning. And it is a pale substitute for in-person learning. So many children have been excluded from online classes due to the digital divide. Another issue is food deprivation and mal- malnutrition. Large number of people struggled to feed their families, and food intake uh, dipped. Children also did not get nutrition services, uh, and uh, provided at village level, and also midday meals uh, 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 schemes as schools were shut. So these are the lessons from the pandemic. The central and state governments and Reserve Bank of India have recognized the economic crisis and responded using fiscal and monetary policies. So the central government uh, announced 21 trillion rupees, around 10% of GDP. But most of the package relates to liquidity measures. The real fiscal stimulus seems to be around only 2% of GDP. It also includes food transfers and cash transfers for the informal poor workers, including migrants. The relief measures, however, helped, but they compensated only a fraction of people's income losses of the poor and informal workers. So what? lastly, what are the policies needed in the post COVID world? The so-called welfare state uh, you know, policies. I think the policy should move towards human development, social sector, employment, food and nutrition, and a move towards more welfare measures, if not complete uh, welfare state. So I will just mention three areas. First, uh, you know, macro policies uh, like fiscal and monetary policies should focus more on social sector development and social protection measures, widening of tax base and increase in some directed taxes, including wealth and inheritance tax. Taxes can raise the revenues uh, for higher growth and more allocation to uh, human development. Second, on social sector, there is a need to move towards higher public expenditures on health and education. You know, COVID-19 has given us several lessons on health sector. Public expenditure on on health is only 1.5% of GDP, one of the lowest in the world. The country has to move towards universal healthcare and spend two to 3% of GDP on health. So great quality dichotomy exists in both health and education sectors. There are islands of excellence like IITs, that can compete internationally in education, while vast majority have poor learning achievements. So we also have the experience of digital gap in education during the pandemic. So one has to fix this dichotomy in health and education. Lastly, you know on social protection programs, India has a long experience in these programs like National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme, public distribution nutrition programs like Midday Meal programs, etc. But these have to be strengthened with more allocations. Uh, In India, there has been a lot of discussion on UBI, uh, the universal basic income, but there is no consensus on uh, UBI. But there is a consensus for cash transfers directly giving to farmers, women, old age pension, uh, old age population, a kind of quasi uh, UBI, UBI, universal basic income. So there is also debate that if you want to have UBI, You should remove all the present social protection programs and all subsidies, which is difficult politically. Some others say we should have UBI along with the present programs and subsidies. So it is true that a universal scheme is easy to implement. I agree with Sharath that we need it, but but feasibility is the critical question. Targeted program is another option, but the issue with targeted programs is the problem of identification, So in order to avoid the identification program, some of us suggested three proposals to meet the objective of providing minimum basic income. One is uh, in both rural and urban areas. First, give cash transfers to all women in both rural and urban areas above the age of 20 years. Second, expand the number of days provided under National Rural Employment Program from 100 to 150 in rural areas, and third, launch a national employment guarantee program in urban areas, including skill skill development. So in all these three proposals, there is no problem of identification. A combination of cash transfer and an expanded employment guarantee scheme can provide minimum basic income. Right now, automation of fourth industrial revolution is not a serious problem in India. But over time, uh, with increase in more tax revenues, uh as sharath mentioned india can move towards ubi uh, universal basic income thank you very much
0: brilliant thank you very much also brilliant on timing and, uh, and and a good reminder i think of the range of challenges that we face i mean it's across income security but it's also about health and education um and the political challenges um it isn't necessarily easy to move towards these changes Thank you very much. So I'm going to move on to Cleo next, who's going to give her five and seven minutes. Welcome, Young Jung. Jung um, and you'll, you'll, I'll come to you last on the panel, if that's all right. So Cleo.
3: Hello. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, well, I wanted to start off just by touching on the purpose of the welfare state. So I think, you know, the, the idea is that we're giving people access to opportunity, that the state is, is having a role in in guaranteeing people a decent quality of life. And yeah, and to build on what uh, Mohandas was just saying, that this is not a small project. This is many-faceted I'm not going to pretend that financial support is the only component of that and that it's, you know, the thing that's going to, you know, vouchers to to allow people to guarantee people a decent quality of life immediately. Things like housing, education, healthcare, good work, time, uh, public spaces, transport, all of these things are, are crucial to a decent quality of life but you know we we want to have a detailed conversation today i think focusing on financial support and and then the links to basic income is is appropriate i think it's appropriate partly because income touches all aspects of a good life and all of these things that i've just mentioned uh, your your income dictates to a degree whether you have access to a decent quality of housing or education etc so um yeah, looking at the financial support we have currently and then using basic income, a full basic income for everyone as a kind of benchmark for for where we could be, I think is, is often a very useful framing when we're considering the role of the welfare state and how we could uh, how we could change it, how we could build a new one. Uh, so yeah, to come to the question, how do we build a new welfare state after COVID-19? I think we've got to look at the financial support during COVID to learn the lessons from it. If we're going to, yeah, that, that's the, there's a, Uh, a gift to us almost after all of this uh, terror to to, to learn from from what's happened over the last couple of years. Um, And the main components of the COVID financial support in the UK, I'm sure the UK uh, residents amongst us are pretty comfortable and pretty familiar with these just now, although this is the week where they are all all being rolled back or uh, the final one being rolled back. So the job retention scheme or colloquially known as furlough, people retained sort of 80% of their pay through their employers the state uh, provided this as long as people weren't doing their job at that point and the purpose of this was to protect businesses protect people's incomes self employment income support scheme similarly grants for self employed people based on their previous earnings protect their businesses their, their work and protect their incomes and then we have universal credit uh, a 20 pound uplift and the removal of conditions uh, in terms of having to prove that you're applying for for jobs per week etc and um, Giving people a wider access to universal credit during the pandemic, and the purpose of this is is a safety net, uh, in, in theory. So I think the the first sort of lesson is acknowledging that our welfare state wasn't particularly well equipped to deal with a crisis without an enormous increase in investment. And um, the NHS we had to go into severe disruption with lockdowns because partly because it wasn't equipped to deal with the the um, the extent of the people that needed access to it. Um, also the the kind of financial support that people needed during the pandemic uh, focusing back on that there was no capacity there's no infrastructure to deliver something like a universal payment a universal basic income uh, during the pandemic so there was a reliance on working through employers uh, delivering that through um, yeah financial support largely through employers which of course does protect jobs does protect businesses too which is a crucial part of uh, financial support during a crisis Um, but the fact that you know out with that it was very difficult to reach people comprehensively um a part of, a, well yeah and i'll move on to that in a moment um people who are excluded from the labor market disabled people carers etc um harder to reach and and you know already left at a disadvantage based on the, the welfare systems that we have in place for them uh self-employed people there was a lot more clunkiness with the implementation of the support for them um, I think it's important to acknowledge the successes of the scheme. I think the comprehensiveness, the sort of, I don't want to use the word generosity, but that's why I'm using the word comprehensiveness, but the, the level of payment for people for, through the furlough scheme, I think is, is something to be respected and to acknowledge as a success. Most people's lives weren't too disrupted by a loss of income when they were the one, when, if that was the uh, scheme that they were being supported by things like listening to trade unions when developing the, the schemes, I think is a success. And yeah, and universal credit being able to deal with the increase in demand. It went from about three million uh, claimants to five point eight during during the course of the pandemic, and there were good shifts around that system for uh, potentially for, for once that allowed people to to claim that money um, during during the crisis. I think we also, of course, need to acknowledge the failures, and I think conditionality is is almost always at the centre of the failures of financial support. Um, people have been excluded entirely from the financial support. They've, they've not been able to access it, even during a crisis when, of course, the, the point was to make sure that people weren't at a massive disadvantage. Uh, and I think we, the conditions put on payments, uh, are, you know, they, they hold on to an idea of contribution and deservingness, even during a crisis when, uh, you know, we should be, the idea of a welfare state surely should be providing everyone, guaranteeing everyone uh, their basic needs. Um, certainly during something like a pandemic. Um, I think the the support for people in non-traditional work or people who are out of work was much less comprehensive than that for employed people. You know, the the universal credit uplift of 20 pounds, which has been removed today, uh, is not a very generous um, payment. You know, if if you took on average how much people were uh, receiving through the furlough scheme and compared it to how much universal credit is, there's a massive disparity there. So there's still, again, an idea of contribution and deservingness that dictated how much financial support people were able to access. And I think the main thing uh, that is, yeah, a, a failure or, um, you know, a fear, I think, at this stage is the desire to take things back to normal. Um, the universal credit changes were always explicitly temporary. Um, there was, you know, and universal credit is a system designed to incentivize people back into work. And I think, Yeah, at this point, the role of the welfare state during this next phase needs to acknowledge the turbulence that will remain on an individual level for businesses, for the world of work. Um, So we need to do things like retain our public services to a high standard, potentially improving them, changing in our our approach or retaining a change in approach to um, public spending. And not returning to, to kind of a look of, of household debt. So just to, to, to end on talking about whether it's time for a basic income, of course, I, I do believe that it is, and um, mostly because we are not going back to normal. Uh, there's enormous changes in, in personal circumstance, uh, and the, the thing that a basic income solves is giving everyone access to an income, and um, making sure everyone has access to an adequate income is more multifaceted. Retaining, you know, a, a sort of partial furlough scheme would would Maybe be part of that, um, but a basic income ensures everyone has an income. Uh, I think there are obviously practical questions on on delivering that that need to happen in in um, between us and implementation. But for me, there are two main reasons, and I'll end here. Uh, there's a practical practical point which I think people need to be able to do unpaid work. Uh, creating a welfare state should be a democratic process and that is a, a unpaid work that we should acknowledge with an, an income in the form of a basic income and I think to create a welfare state that gives people access to a decent quality of life we need to trust people and um, we need to believe in people's ability to to create a decent quality of life for themselves and and to make choices and where they put effort in where they allocate their work and I think you can only do that with unconditionality uh, in the form of a basic Thank you. Thank you
0: very much, Cleo. Thank, Thank, you. You. Very, Thank you. Very, very, um, <laughs> very good. Um, you covered a lot of ground there. You started off with a very important point, I think, about income being touching all aspects of the good life. And I think that is an important point to remember. I was also struck by your point about conditionality being at the centre of all the failures. Um, we might want to come back to that because that's an interesting point. Can I encourage the audience to get your questions started? Typing in your questions. We've got one more speaker to hear from, and then we've got time for all comments, questions, and comments. So, uh, but let's turn now to Young Jung to, from South Korea for his perspective on this. Over to you. You've got your five to seven minutes.
4: Thank you, Jane. Uh, I'm sorry for being late. Um, yeah, let me share the uh, Korean story. Uh, the Korea has been uh, one of the best performer in terms of fighting against COVID-19 the number of the infected people uh, has always been one of the lowest among OECD countries. Uh, in terms of public health, yes, um, but uh, there are other aspects we need to pay attention to, uh, particularly uh, employment, income, care, and social relationship during the pandemic period. Uh, nearly 75% of people have experienced one of these COVID-related social risks in Korea. Uh, these risks are often uh, interrelated, for example, According to the national survey, about uh, 40% of Korean people are reluctant to meet others because of financial difficulty during the pandemic period. Uh, According to OECD report last May, uh, depression prevalence was the highest in Korea in 2020, nearly uh, 40% was about 37% or something like that. Uh, What was also striking to me is uh, people change jobs in very short cycles uh, during pandemic period and from my qualitative research, uh, I have witnessed a significant decline in their bargaining power in the labor market. Uh, during the pandemic, uh, people with various skills and jobs, for example, small business owners, actors, students, and, you know, various unemployed people, ended up with doing a short-term uh, platform work, like delivery work. Uh, in the absence of decent social policy, Uh, These workers are not in a situation where they can wait to utilize or develop their skills. I believe that this phenomenon is not temporary. Uh, It already existed before COVID-19 to some extent, has been strengthened by COVID-19, and it would be accelerated further uh, with digitalization. Uh, So in the post-pandemic era, the welfare state should focus on how to secure individual bargaining power in the labor market and how to secure individual freedom and stability. The problem is that in this process, the welfare state, as we know, did not play this role very well, at least in Korea. Among those suffered from unemployment, involuntary working hour reduction, or unpaid leave. uh, In Korea, only slightly more than 20% workers have received unemployment benefits or emergency relief allowances. The pandemic really shows the weaknesses of uh, Korean welfare state, not able to protect self-employed workers, atypical workers, or workers at smaller workplaces who have have been hardest hit. The current policy option by the Korean government is to extend the coverage of current social policies like unemployment insurance, and to develop tax and benefit administration, uh, such as real-time information in the UK. But I wonder whether those measures could save the welfare state. Um, I will tell you why. Uh, The income inequality is increasing, and social mobility is weakening, uh, which means people are not moving ups and downs, but there are quickly, uh, there are a sticky ceiling and sticky floor. One implication is uh, some people could repeatedly receive welfare or unemployment benefits, whereas others think uh, they only pay and contribute, contribute to the system. Uh, as a result, the conditionality and sanction can be stronger in public assistance and unemployment benefits. Uh, for example, our uh, progressive government now is trying to reduce unemployment benefit level if one repeatedly receives it. For example, three times in five years, then uh, 50% cut of unemployment benefit. Uh, the extension of social policy with better public administration might not be the answer in this situation uh, also, in a society where payers and receivers are clearly divided, uh, you cannot expect thick social capital, social solidarity, or democracy. Not only income inequality, but also asset inequality is widening. Uh, somehow, during the last 3-4 years, housing prices more than doubled in Korea probably uh, not very different in uh, UK and elsewhere. While it is uh, very difficult to save, for example, like 100,000 pounds for 20, 30 years with your regular uh, income or job, but you see some are earning million pounds with having house or lands within three, four years. What about Bitcoin and other things? Uh, the price of labor seems to be increasingly meaningless to many, uh, particularly for young people who are anyway struggling to get a decent job in the labor market. Instead of being a hardworking worker or entrepreneur, uh, they want to be a full-time investor in Bitcoin stocks and real estate. Normally, the result is um, the richer get richer and the poor get poorer. So we thought uh, we are living in knowledge-based economy. But in the end, uh, we are living in the asset-based society, asset-based economy. Most of young people go to university in Korea. Uh, But clearly, knowledge alone cannot give stability or security to young people. I don't think there's only one way to overhaul the existing welfare state. Um, Also, universal basic income cannot be a panacea. Uh, Better quality and universal social services and social investment are also very important. Uh, But universal basic income can help and relieve these inequalities by financing it as well as providing the benefit. Uh, and also give foundation for strengthening uh, individual autonomy and security for not only for uh, those producing price but also creating social value through community, uh, community work where the unpaid care and so on. So um, in Korea, there's very strong debate on universal basic income at the moment uh, within politics and academies now. Uh, one of the strong presidential candidates promised to start universal basic income uh, but with a very low uh, benefit level and local governments are trying to experiment this idea so um rebuilding the welfare state uh is just uh, has just begun in korea thank you
0: thank you very much Jong. um again also perfect on timing and um lots of interesting points there um i think your point you started by saying the, the the problems were often interrelated, and I think that's very true. And it, it relates to your inequality point in a way. Some people suffer a lot on a lot of dimensions, um, whereas other people, it, it, you know, hardly suffer at all, as it were. And that division of the world into the payers and the receivers is obviously very pernicious and uh, makes life difficult in terms of thinking of reform. So a number of points there to get our teeth into. Now, you panel have been wonderful. Um, Your timing has been been so brilliant. We have about half an hour left for questions, comments and debate. So I'm expecting lots of things to pop up in the chat. Um, And I've got one to kick us off. So let's start off with the first question that's come up. Would a central bank issued debit card to all create a mechanism to support essential food purchase and critical housing access and expanding into the wider welfare system and so pave the way for universal basic income? So a debit card to start with, um, would that be a helpful route into thinking about basic income? Not directed anyone. Um, Sir Arthur, would you like to start on this?
1: Well, I, um, I'm not an economist, uh, I'm a sociologist. I think Mahindra Dev is more uh, <laughs> uh, equipped to deal with that question. But anyway, I think uh, I, I'll just make one simple statement that you know, the whole question of feasibility mm. uh, is not feasibility of UBI. Mm is not a, a fiscal question, is not an economic question, it's more a psychological question. I think psychologically as a society, as a, an industrial civilization, we are not prepared to do anything unconditional. We are not prepared to give that elbow room, which is there, not able to recognize that we need to change. I think I'll just hand over to others.
0: Mahendra, you 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 can.
2: Uh, yeah no the uh the central bank uh, i mean i'm in favor of uh ubi uh, thing but the discussions basically uh you know the fiscal uh, although cheryl says it's not a fiscal problem uh, the people say uh, i mean we already have so many programs in addition if you want to spend five uh, percent of gdp or ten percent of gdp it will be a difficult one uh, but on the other hand uh, still i think uh with increase in inequality and uh you know asset inequality it is possible to have uh, universal basic income in a, even in a developing country like uh, like india so i am in favor but apart from that uh, the usual uh you know health and education uh are equally important so some people say that there is a trade-off between this and uh, you know health expenditure which is only 1.5 percent of gdp uh which uh you know they don't have the poor people or middle class they don't have health facilities so uh that is the dilemma thing uh but uh, there is uh, now a movement towards cash transfers mm-hmm. uh you know un- unconditional cash transfers mm-hmm. so that is one way of starting yeah. the thing before moving to the universal uh basic income but the central bank uh yeah can do it uh if there is a bill
0: yeah it's a good point. It's about the steps towards it, I suppose. And it goes back to what we were saying earlier about the political realities. Steps towards. Cleo, what about steps towards from your point of view?
3: Steps towards using this as this step. Steps towards
0: a universal basic income. What what sort of things? I mean, th- this idea of a debit card was one step towards, but you may have other thoughts on step mm-hmm. towards.
3: Yeah, I mean, my... Uh, kind of favorite <laughs> uh, steps towards kind of processes looking at the current system and you know removing the conditionality from things that currently exist or or kind of swapping them out for things that don't have conditions on because I think I completely agree with her on the idea that it's a psychological barrier we we hate the idea of unconditional money and that's the definition of what a basic income is and and um, I think to you know I think feasibility largely is a political feasibility problem. We need public support for something as fast to change as, as basic income, because we need to know that the electorate wants it to happen and politicians aren't going to do it without that um that public support. And I think sort of targeted campaigns to things like you know carers allowance or disability not disability benefits, like uh, just removing conditionality from things that currently exist or really strong campaigns around that would be would be really helpful in terms of a steps towards process. But um but I do think that uh, you know commitment to basic income as the first step, a big step, a leap almost um, is is a reasonable thing too because there is a risk of um, you know the peaks and troughs of political interest and things It's a fickle fickle circumstance. so committing that basic income is the thing that we want to do in, in a single step I think is also um, compelling.
0: Thank you. And young Jung, is it your local you mentioned local government experimenting with it? Is that a good way to start do you think?
4: Uh, yes, I think that's a, a good way to start. I mean, this is not only, surely we need more evidence uh, whether the basic income is actually working, uh, but also the, the experiment actually gives uh, time for people to think about uh, whether the basic income is good for me or not. Uh, because the basic income is um, it, it's kind of different from, uh, for example, like existing social service, because um, you pay and you receive at the same time. So uh, it, it's a kind of uh, we need a new imagination. We need a kind of new public deliberation process to discuss uh, how we can reorganize our life uh, with 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 the system. For example, you know, um, you know, it, it costs a lot uh, from the state government point of view. It, you know, affordability is the big issue. You know, how how we can you know prepare like ten percent or twenty percent of GDP to provide the basic income. But actually, from the citizen point of view, it's actually uh, y- you pay a substantial amount of money in this month, and you re- most of people actually re- receive this month at the at the same time. So uh, it, there's a, not a huge kind of a you know big challenge for uh, each family or each person, uh, unless you're not the very rich or the poor. Uh, but because in a policy debate, we always think it's a you know always we we say you know this ten percent our welfare they spend twenty percent, but now you want to spend twenty percent more, but that that is a kind of a different from like one of the local government in Korea, uh, they uh, they ask citizens to come and they spend uh, two two days and they just discuss about basic income life for two days mm. this is a kind of a new experiment mm. about yeah. the public deliberation yeah and then uh, after two days it was um we, we experienced very kind of a different um outcome the people mm. improve their understanding yeah. and, and they rethink about their life and and not everybody happy about basic income surely but uh, they understand and then they they finally see what is the good for good for them so I mm-hmm. think the experiment is important and public deliberation, and I think the experiment itself also gives a lot of people to think about mm-hmm. uh, what, what what to do now.
0: Thank you. Very interesting. I think I think that experience about um, giving people, allowing people more chance to talk and understand the um, issue in depth um, can really make a difference to opinion. Sarath, you wanted to come in there?
1: I just want to add, uh, Jane, that uh, the steps towards universal basic income, Uh, for example, in India, I think one of the states like my state, uh, Hyderabad, Telangana state, it gives a a kind of an unconditional income support to farmers, universal. So Mm -hmm. what is being being experimented is to identify subsets of populations, not necessarily in the register of citizenship but register of occupation or like Mahendra has just said that women in one of the states in West Bengal, they are implemented another cash transfer only to women. So I think that's one thing that's happening. Those are the steps. The other thing is that the local governments are much more, they are much more experimenting than the federal or the central governments. I think initiatives seem to be coming from there, like Gyeonggi province in Korea. Yeah.
0: Yeah, great. Good point. I think about different groups or different um, professions or I mean, child benefit is a basic income for children. You know, so we have a form of basic income already, although it's now become a bit means tested. But, you know, so thinking about children and pensioners, for example, um, differently from working age people is also another route into it, I think. Now, I've got a nice question from Nick Pierce about the... um, the politics, as it were, can the panel reflect on the question of whether a basic income is politically more conceivable and plausible in countries with underdeveloped welfare states than those in well-developed social security systems? So is it likely to come in better in countries with underdeveloped welfare states or those with developed social security systems? I'll start, I think I'll start with Young Jung this time.
4: Yeah, um, I, I think that my be uh true uh, because um you know the uh, some sectional people for example the advanced welfare state they support the existing uh the welfare state uh, so uh, they might not want uh you know dramatic change uh in their welfare state but uh, in spite of that, um, still like a uh, Finland, they introduced the uh, you know the basic income experiment uh, because probably in 1980s, probably 1970s, they they probably didn't want uh, any basic income. Uh, they probably uh, thought uh, the welfare state itself was uh, the kind of a basic income system. But now, you know, the more sanctions uh, and the uh, lack of, um, uh, also the there's some problems, and they cannot cope with the changing labor market, and they cannot cope with the technological change. So I think even some of the advanced welfare state they want um, the basic income. So I think the not only uh, on the developed uh, welfare state, but also the developed welfare state. I think there might be a higher kind of support for the basic income. In Korea, uh, from my research, I I found uh, welfare state support and basic income support are slightly different. Mm -hmm. Um, The Mm -hmm. regular workers with a stable job, they tend to support uh, existing social Mm -hmm. insurance and welfare Mm -hmm. state program. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, the young people, uh, women, uh, irregular workers or self-employed, a worker, they tend to su- support the basic income, but they not always support uh, the welfare state. Yeah. So, um, yes, I, I think I, I probably need might be true, but I, I probably need more evidence. I just want to listen to all
2: the other things. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Mahendra, what, what's your take on this when You talked about some of the challenges in the Indian welfare state.
2: Yeah, I mean, they, uh, you know, as I mentioned, uh, the 91% uh, uh, of the workers are in informal sector and they don't have any social security and uh, things. So so first thing is of course, to give them some kind of social security uh, thing. Uh, But uh, politically, uh, you know, the uh, many people, uh, you know, are not in favor of the overall basic, uh, large basic income, uh, universal basic income, but uh, only uh they are interested in uh, you know cash transfers to certain sections of the population yeah. uh and there are pilot programs uh on universal basic income and which led to good good results i mean mm-hmm. benefited the poor and others but uh the uh, uh basically for example the present government more is more interested in uh, you know having more insurance kind of things rather than mm-hmm. you know basic incomes yeah. uh, and all so uh Because it is feasible, uh, uh, you know, there are lots lots of tax uh, reliefs for rich people, corporate sector and others, and lots of subsidies, which we can remove and, uh, you know, give uh, universal basic income. But politically, they don't want to do it. So Mm -hmm. that is the, you know, major problem.
4: Mm
0: -hmm. Yes, good. Other views, Sarath, Cleo?
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Jane. I think uh, it's very interesting that what am I on mute? No, no. no. Uh, what what seems to be interesting is that about the politically is it politically conceivable? Is it is there a political feasibility of this idea?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, not the lock, stock, and barrel, not as a wholesale concept, but mm-hmm. I think uh, in some places some politicians are seeing that they can gain electoral dividends. Mm-hmm. Through mm. this unconditionality. Somehow, unconditionality mm. seems to be gaining some traction with some mm. politicians. Yeah. And that's why I think in our last general elections, I think there was a move that many people started uh, announcing mm. this kind of uh, an unconditional thing. So, mm. probably five to 10 years from now, I think uh, in small steps, uh, political feasibility also will be uh, mm. kind of become visible. Mm. That's my. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Yeah. And Cleo, I mean, there's been much more debate about basic income in the UK, very well developed social security system supporting millions of people, um, which in a way makes it a challenge to change. And we talked earlier about sweeping everything away and replacing it with one thing would be quite challenging. But there's there's definitely interest, isn't there, in different parts of the UK?
3: Yeah, definitely. I think that I think there certainly is it sort of similarly at a subnational level, local government and uh, devolved governments. There's serious and I guess almost the devolved government interest in Wales and Scotland in the UK, you know, th- maybe they're thinking about developing their own social security systems or their own welfare state, you know, in a way that the UK as a whole kind of isn't because it's established, it's almost taken for granted. It's and in a way, it's something that I think, People don't politically, it's not really a vote winner. It's not really something that politicians tend to go out on a limb for, you know, the public don't care. Like, I think I've I've heard sort of people want to see a welfare state that is sufficient and ethical, you know, that treats people fairly and gives them enough money. That's what people as individuals care about but they don't care so much about policies or specific mechanisms. And I think basic income is is almost unique in that because it is something that does have widespread popular support. It's a very compelling idea. It's simple enough to be understood. It's comprehensive enough to feel exciting. Um, But I do think it's still a a hard one to win. And um, yeah, and I think also because we have a developed social security system that's kind of built around very much about targeting, um, you know, the benefit system specifically is, you know, it, there, is, there are reasons mm. that people are receiving the money that, and a basic income kind of doesn't replace that. It sits alongside it. It's another mm. central part of unconditional money, guaranteed income for everyone. And then, the t- you know, where people need additional income, which is currently how the benefit system is built and um, based on other factors like being out of work or, uh, you know, having disability. Mm. Um, that's how we provide money at the moment. So I think there's a real conceptual leap uh, that needs to be made for people in the UK on, on basic income. That maybe is hindered by the fact that we have quite a well-developed system and then you know practically implementing the infrastructure for delivering a basic income is, is maybe not a political project many people would want <laughs> yeah yeah
0: it, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier as well about people's understanding of the system and what they think the system already does and doesn't do so um we need to be clear on that. Now, I've got a nice um, question, international question. Um, Given that the UBI is only likely to be introduced at a national government level, so one country might introduce introduce it, but others not, how is this likely to impact on global labor markets and supply chains? I think global ma- labour market is particularly interesting. We talked, we touched a little bit on migration and migrant labour, and that's certainly an issue in globalised world. So, what about UBI in one country? Is it where? What does that mean um, internationally? Mahendra, I'm sure you're going to um, be good on this one.
2: Yeah, in the, internationally, I think uh, it, it's useful uh, to have uh, universal uh, b- basic income in uh, different countries uh, because uh, then it can improve uh, the global, uh, you know, growth and other uh, other, uh, even exports and other kinds of things, labor markets, uh, benefit. So uh, I think the, uh, global implications are positive if you have, uh, the, uh, UBI, uh, So that's, but, uh, that's why I feel.
0: Good. Any other views on this one? And, and well, also
2: the value chains also will benefit Uh, with the, you know, uh, with the more income, but the, uh, you know, for example, the 90% of the population, uh, if we have more uh, cash transfers, the the, uh, UBI.
0: Yeah, benefit. Yeah, uh, yeah,
1: yeah, Seraf. Yeah, uh, Jane uh, I know a couple of people who are already thinking of a world basic income, a global basic income and all that. There are two, uh, there there are two, uh, I think next door, Manchester. Uh, Paul Hardnett, and they are working on that. Anyway, uh, I think there are two important areas we need to really consider. One is the, um, the, the, the we have to interrogate the existing foreign aid register completely mm. and see and put it to an ethical stress test and see what exactly is happening in the name of foreign aid today. Where does that money go? And what kind of transactions happen in the name of foreign aid? Okay, that's one. Is it really aid at all? I think that's one area of interrogation. The other is, uh, I think there is also a larger ethical question we have to put to the multinationals in terms of reparations to where they have taken the resources from, at what cost, at what profit, at what benefit. I think uh, we need to actually impose that kind of an ethical obligation to, to the multinationals. I think those are the... And of course, the the, the, the the not the carbon dividend, but the, the digital dividends is, as data as the new oil is also another window that opens up mm. to really consider uh, a kind of a global uh, basic income, especially yeah. moving from those who have to those who do not have at all. I think we need to consider because we are already a global village.
0: Mm. Yeah, great points. I think very much so. And I think that's going to be a very strong debate as we go forward. The international issue of reparations, international of what we owe to each other as an international welfare state, if you like, rather than just thinking in national terms, because we are linked together by our history, as well as by our current situation and by our future. So I think those issues will continue to be really important um young jung did you want to say anything about what you think for the international yeah world? um
4: well you know um th- there's a high productivity gap between a developed country and underdeveloped country uh, and also within even korea there's a very high productive firm like samsung hyundai whereas uh like s- uh, nearly 90 percent of firms they are small medium companies the productivity gap is is nearly like 100 to 30. So uh, if, if I only give an example within Korea, uh, there are a number of people uh, that work in a very uh, bad working conditions uh, without labor union, proper labor unions and so on. Mm. But they have to accept those jobs because uh, they don't have other means to survive. Uh, but when we provide uh, the basic income, then probably the people have a, you know, they, they increase their bargaining power to say no to the dangerous work or dirty work and so on, mm-hmm. then then that would probably starting from there, uh, and I think that would restructure our economic uh, economy in mm-hmm. industrial structure uh, in Korea. I think mm-hmm. this is same uh, in in a global scale. Uh, if uh, the the people in the developed world, if they can say no to a uh, very bad companies, you know, uh, not green yeah. companies, and they try to exploit others. But then if they can, they have a power to say no, then I think this would uh, restructure our global supply chain and so Mm -hmm. on. So I think this is a a very probably positive uh, once we provide the basic Mm -hmm. income, yeah.
0: Thank you very much. And I've got a question that that kind of follows on from that in a way, which is about what people might want to say yes to in the context of a basic income. Would more unpaid homework like caring and homeschooling be enabled by universal basic income? And this could also reduce the pathogens in a world where future future pathogens are less age specific. So thinking back to our COVID-19 context, homework, caring, could the um, universal basic income open up those opportunities more clear you mentioned the issue of caring and the importance of that do you want to talk a little bit more about how UBI might help us with the caring side of the world we which is so important in terms of everyone's lives and quality of life
3: yeah certainly well I think that fundamentally there is sort of inherently an acknowledgement of unpaid work and the importance of unpaid work in a basic income that um, you know that there is always work that both is always going to be done for no money, but should always always be done for no money. Like it, you know, if you try and start paying an hourly wage for uh, for housework or for childcare, it becomes very complicated, very conditional, and and yeah. So I think I think there's also a balance to strike and sort of a lot of care to take around the, the care question with a basic income because I think you know the gender dynamic the, of, of the distribution of care caring roles in, in the household. could be exacerbated by giving a basic income you know people could be more entrenched in gender roles and i think there is a a risk there um Mm. but yeah as long as the the way the basic income is designed and delivered allows people to have more freedom of choice whether that's freedom of accepting or refusing certain types of paid labor or unpaid labor i think that yeah it it could certainly allow people to have more of a Mm. a good balance of of caring roles uh and I, i think uh, yeah, I think the paid labour aspect comes into this as well, because if, if the basic income gives them me- meaningful bargaining power on their working conditions, so whether they want to work from home and balance mm. paid work with like caring responsibilities, which is so crucial, so crucial to people with caring mm. responsibilities, being able to have a functional lifestyle um, that mm. they have control over and that suits their needs through the through the life cycle as well, you know when your kids grow up or your parents get uh, old or mm. all of this, I think I think a basic income really does have have a role as a kind of smoothing mm. uh, policy for, for mm. all of that kind of work. Mm.
0: Sarath, I mean do you want to come back on this from the Indian perspective where the the boundaries perhaps between paid and unpaid and care and formal labour market are not quite so perhaps rigid as we see them in the UK? Mm.
4: I mean, before uh, the, the pandemic time, uh, the policy rhetoric in Korea, Korean welfare mm-hmm. state, uh, had been a uh, socialization of care. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the, we support, uh, provide the public facilities and so on. Mm-hmm. But uh, during the pandemic time, uh, the people uh, realized unpaid care was really, really important mm-hmm. uh, too. Uh, because the because of the uh, you know infection concern and the the government shut down the the schools and nurseries, not only school nurseries but uh, the care centers and daycare centers and so on. So so many people they had to stay home to take care of the young one or the disabled or the uh, elderly parents. Uh, and then uh, that's why the women uh, were the, mostly uh, the hit yeah. by the the pandemic time and. And, and there was virtually kind of a no uh, kind of a compensation for, for this uh, very precious, the care work. So, uh, I mean, in Korea, we, we are kind of notorious for a very kind of productive, productivist uh, society. We mm. only kind of compensate so-called the price producing work but not the, the value creating yeah. work. But uh, I, I think it's time uh, to recognize um you know the how the the care work is important and the care work should be also kind of you know uh devalued and also compensated uh through the different means so i think the basic income could be one of the ways to do that
0: thank you very much i'm conscious of time we've got five minutes left i want to give each of our panelists a minute each to um, have any final comments you might want to address a question that i've got um, about basic income won't cover all basic needs. What framework of other measures and policies are needed to complement universal basic income? You might want to address that or whatever you'd like to say, but you get just a minute each and we'll go in the same order as the speakers. Saras, do you want to, um, any final comments?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'll go... For the, 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 I would like to close with, I think a, a better society, which we all want, is a society that is a caring society. I think care becomes the central pillar of such a society. I think when you talk about a basic income society, I'm sure basic income income security doesn't solve all the problems. I think Mahendra actually made a very good case saying that health and education are very important. Now, but then the point is when you, in a basic income society, the half the population that was providing unpaid care, you have, you have begun to recognize that they are contributing to the economy. Number one, that happens. Number two, I think the caring society, the caring economy of the future that we want to have is also something we need to care for the earth, for the environment, and also care for ourselves. I think when we do that, when there is a psychological atmosphere of sense of security, I think you, I feel you automatically start caring I, I think that is the kind of society I would like to visualize, yeah. Thank you, thank you very much. Mahendra, your minute.
2: Yeah, uh, you know, tackling inequality is the main uh, main thing, I think, uh, because inequalities are increasing significantly. Uh, so that is one uh, where you need uh, policies for that, uh, you know, the, uh, employment, the uh, social sector, health education, and uh, of course, the uh, basic income kind of support. Uh, but on the women, uh, you know, uh, I agree that uh, you know, if we have this uh, basic income, uh, I think care economy, they they have more freedom, and uh, their financial empowerment also increases within the household. So I think uh, you know that is also an important. Uh, thank Great,
0: you. thank you very much. Thanks, um, Claire.
3: Yeah, for me, I, I think. It's really crucial that we start democratizing conversations about things like the welfare state and and genuinely involving more people in them, you know, building structures things like citizens assemblies that aren't just cons- consultations that that result in action and and for me that's partly why I think I so deeply believe in a basic income because it feels like a meaningful action that has mm-hmm. a very direct and very significant comprehensive impact. For people and allows them to engage more in in society and and hopefully uh, sort of democratic processes. And um, yeah, and I, I do think talk a lot about basic income. Talk a lot about money. I like, I like the question about what else needs to happen. And I think in the UK particularly housing and and sort of a right to decent housing and a right not to exploitative uh, to not have to deal with exploitative landlords is a really crucial crucial part of that.
0: Great, thank you very much, Young Jung.
4: Yes, uh, I, I think the how to financing this um, the welfare state and also universal basic income is really important. So uh, the taxing policy this is something we need to t- discuss more. And also, I, I'm I'm a strong supporter of the universal basic services uh, too. So I I think we we could combine these two together. A probably not adequate universal basic income, but it's a modest level of basic income with uh, universal basic service mm-hmm. and targeting uh, net zero society by 2050. I think that is also a very important uh, target for all of us. Mm-hmm. So um, finding h- how to combine these two together and also together with the, uh, the de- decent decentralizations and social innovations, how, how we can make more jubilant society Uh, I I think these should be all the uh, active citizenship, I think those should be our agenda for future.
0: Brilliant, thank you all so much. So we're looking for a more caring society, tackling inequality, including gender inequality, democratic conversations, uh, making sure we know how we're going to pay for all this, looking at the financing side as well, um, and the services that should run alongside universal basic income. So there's a small agenda for the future, but that's the idea. We should be thinking big. Um, We should be trying to take uh, this opportunity to think big for future. Thank you all, panel, very much. And thank you, audience, for your questions. Sorry if we didn't get to you. uh, but it's time now to stop. So I'll just say thanks again to the four panellists who've given us such a stimulating um, conversation. Thanks a lot, everyone. Bye. Thank Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.
1: Bye. 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 Thank you.